everyone. Welcome to Digital Reflections. Um, as ever, it's uh, me, Ali Nicol, and with me is Marcus G. Say hello, Marcus. Hey, hey. And our guest today is Jonathan Eyre. Uh, Jonathan is the technical lead in Digital Twins at the Advanced Manufacturing Research Center. Uh, AMRC is a world-class advanced manufacturing research center based in Sheffield. Um, and uh, we'd like to have you with us, Jonathan. Uh, thanks for joining us. No problem. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, so uh, obviously, uh, John knows a lot about a lot around Digital Twins, but uh, one of the reasons we wanted to talk today is that you are the principal editor of AMRC's report, Untangling the Requirements of, Digi of Add Digital Twin, uh, which came out in October 2020? Is that yeah, yeah, late last year. Yeah, perfect. Um, this is a fantastic report. We'll include a link uh, in, in the details of this. Um, it's a brilliant report that looks into not only what a digital twin is, um, but how it's how to start, how to begin looking at how to use it, where to use it, and the categorization. And uh, John, I wanted to start with um, what was the genesis of the report? I mean, why, what what started you on the journey? Um, it's a very good question. That it's kind of one that was we kept getting asked things as being where we sit within research. We often get asked around why should we have a digital twin? Can we come work with you and develop our own digital twins? And there was all this consensus around, well, we've kind of got to take them on that journey of explaining where it's come from, what are people's thoughts, what should they be looking for? And there's a lot of still, there's still a lot of hype around what it means to have one. Um, so it kind of built upon the report that we did back in 2016, really. Um, sorry, 2018 around the requirements of digital twin within an immersive context. Um, so there we went out and interviewed sort of over 100 engineers, kind of looked at the, the fundamental requirements. And as more recent reports have come out and actually boldly stated, if you don't have something physical, then it's not a digital twin. Um, we was driving that back in 2018, um, and it's part of the research that we did back then. So it's kind of, well, times have moved on in the last two years. We've been having a lot more conversations about it, and it was kind of building towards Kind of the latest iteration of that really um we'd gathered before the research around what it needed to have what people thought and what we kind of never put sort of the line in the sand of look this is what it means to have a digital twin from an amr perspective um you get a lot of people um still saying this is what we think a digital twin is there's needs to have this part of it or needs to have this part of it and i guess from our side it was still lacking that um what you might describe as more of an academic rigor around this isn't just a description, this is why we are going with it. Um, and contentious parts of like, should it be described as live? Should it be timed as real time? Is kind of what we wanted to get to. And it's, it's probably why I think we initially wanted probably four to five slides of a report or just a, a few pages we wanted to describe it. It just became not unwieldy, but kind of this large section where it just needed so much explanation around, look, this is what we mean and this is why we are saying it, to try and help drive consensus in the topic area. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, I love about the report is the line in the sand of the definition right up front and where every word in the sentence is coded. So the description you give is that a digital twin is a live digital coupling of the state of a physical asset or process to a virtual representation with a functional output. And then the report goes on to effectively break down every single one of those words and, and, <laughs> and, why, and why it's there. Um, 
were there were there lots of internal wranglings over over oh, which, yeah. whether to include them or and whether they were um yeah. exclusory I, th- I think most of that report time of what we had like the internal resource for was spent on that sentence like the rest <laughs> of the report once we decided it just flew naturally because we'd all agreed um and we could each, each take an individual section write it or i mean the um internal funding that we got was great because it was kind of it wasn't just myself who deals with like this day to day i almost took a hands-off approach and said look my head is in the space of digital twins i want people to come up with their own ideas and come to the same conclusion that i have to make sure i wasn't missing the trick um it's great being the technical lead in the area i have conversations across aerospace defense manufacturing of all different types um but to have other people come to the same conclusion as i had through the research i've been doing when we've got people on the sort of main editors from composites, from machining, from design and prototyping, which specialise in 3D printing or medical applications. I just helped steer kind of the conversation. So look, just make sure you're reading this paper, this, that, and the other. And kind of just made sure they understood all the research that I have, having sort of dedicated my time to working in this space. And actually the, the final conclusion of that kind of sentence meant that actually, yeah, we, we, we all understand this. This is what we're all agreeing on and this is what it needs to be. So, um, yeah, like you say, once we could start breaking down the individual words, um, yeah, it was much, much easier to drive forward, really. I think, to say, the biggest contention was that live versus real time. Um, it's a really key point, that. Yeah, and I, I thought that was particularly interesting, particularly because right at the end of the report in kind of the, the allied concepts, you talk about digital shadow, as the kind of you know actually some element of data store but that live um we were recently at an event with the team defense information group in it and that again seemed to be the word that a few people were sticking on and just querying and uh, and driving at it where do you see the discussion around it i mean obviously you've come down on the side of live but where is the discussion around live versus real time so real time for us had too many connotations of a machine spitting out sample weights at like 10 hertz or kind of it was constantly publishing information um whereas for us and it's why again quite a core aspect of the report was having those examples to say look this is a digital twin this is a digital twin like this also meets that requirement um the one thing that i wish we had more space to maybe it's part two who knows is saying what isn't a digital twin um so if you're just having a database being updated we didn't don't classify that as a digital twin um, because one, you're not doing anything with it, so it doesn't meet the requirement of having a functional output. Um, but two is like, well, what's the value of just having data but not having the use case as well? So there's kind of that aspect to it. But um, yeah, it was certainly good to have like a door being open or closed. As long as you get the information of when it's changing state, then it's fine. So as long as it there's um, what we're currently doing in the manufacturing space is the adoption of the Sparkbook specification, which is run by the Eclipse Foundation. Um, and they are kind of saying, look, if you've got a heartbeat or the same situation where you can have a, de- a birth certificate of, I will tell you I'm now publishing information as well as a death certificate to okay, look, I'm no longer being transmitting, then you've got all the information you need. Whether you get a door state being opened and closed every five minutes, mm. or whether it's just notifying you when it has been opened or when it has been closed, even if you don't hear for it for two years, you still know its status. So why should you transmit all of that data for years without it actually needing to be sent? 
Yeah, I love that. I mean, we had a, a conversation with someone some number of years ago where we were talking about geological twins, you know, so monitoring of seismic activity. And that that absolutely fell into that kind of use case where what you're talking about was live state changes or or the state of an entity. Obviously, you don't need a 10 hertz reporting that, you know, has this erupted in the last you know, cycle? No, it's, not, it's going to erupt once every 70 years ish. Like what you need to know is, is has the state changed that becomes very important not the regularity of it yeah definitely and that's where also the the key part is like glacial speed it's just love to have there in this case of look if it's once a week and yes it is gathering that information great because like that's all you care about um and it's also the whole thing of latency um of look is it done in a close enough time scales um and it's a discussion we're going to have later on towards the end so i'll not say too much but with rocket sort of um, power systems and everything else. Like if you can't control your rocket fast enough because you haven't got a strong enough connection because the latency is too high, then it isn't good enough. So it shouldn't be classified as a digital twin. Um, but if it is good enough, then hey, you've got one, um, great. And and that's a key thing that comes through both talking to you and, and in your reports and presentations around this it is good enough. Starting with that use case that really digital twins are an approach rather than a codified set of technology. I mean, in the report, you use examples of uh, war rooms where uh, positions of, of um, assets on a battlefield are being uh, radioed in. And, and as a result, you have a, a model effectively in the war room that's being updated live um, that gives you an understanding of what's going on. And you have, uh, obviously, they weren't um, digital, virtual representations, but they're, they're models, literal models of what's going on in the world. and and in the kind of requirements piece you you absolutely start with a use case i mean it's, it's bullet one start with a use case and has your thinking around digital twins as an approach evolved or going back to your report in 2018 and, and your thinking then has has it always felt more of an approach than a kind of set of technologies or, or a specific technology i think hindsight's a wonderful thing um <laughs> and i think looking back now it's always been an approach. Um, I think the 2018 report was very good at capturing what people needed and a lot of the um, movement at that time. I mean, even as IOTICS, I'm sure you're having many conversations around the thing of, well, this is what you need and this is what we can provide to help fill, fill that gap. Um, but really, that at the time, as if you looked at the Gartner hype cycles, like digital twin was right at the top there. Um, it's now disappeared because people have realized what it means to have one and the fundamental requirements of it. And it just is an approach. Um, it's, it's the analogy that I'll always use of, if it was a new technology, we would be coming up with a new database structure or a new method of communication or something fantastic, which just enables it. All we're seeing in this space is new ways of enabling connectivity to make sure that any of these physical assets that we have, have a way of being described that we can now do it on a computer at the same time. So in the likes of a mathematician, if we could differentiate, and he was amazing at differentiation, he wouldn't always differentiate. Sometimes he'd integrate, sometimes he'd draw a graph. So you've got to choose the right tool for the job. And that's what it's come down to me with digital twins, is that this is an approach because you don't always have to use it. Sometimes you just need sensor data coming off something and that drives your MES system. 
that isn't a digital twin, or it could be if you have some sort of use case that needs it. It's just gathering information and needing it to enable a manufacturing site. So for that case, that was the use case, and then you just enable it through technology. And that's the real drive behind it, really. Yeah, and I think I think the the complication or the addition to that is that your uh, adoption strategy ends with uh, thinking long term. And and one of the things that um, I'm really interested in is you know obviously this was 2018. Uh, you released this report in 2020. Kind of direction of travel. What are the what are the considerations you think you'll be looking out for as people? adopt this approach for the right use cases in the right scenarios? I mean, what is the next um, next sort of area of interest for you? Yeah, there's a lot going on now. And I think it's um, having sent it around sort of the OEMs that we're working with, as well as SMEs, to be honest. Um, we've seen a lot of people say, yeah, we agree. And they're asking the same question. So what next? Um, they're starting to work on their use cases. But like you say, the, the big question for them still remains, what next? Um, and this is where we are saying to them, look, at least get that initial use case because some people, believe it or not, are actually asking us, so what next? When they've not even like started on that approach. Um, so like they've not even got some form of digital twin um, or starting to understand what it means to them as a business because the challenge is cultural shift. Um, people who have been doing the same thing day in, day out, going in meeting sensors, that they still don't understand the impact that it will have on their business. So I certainly say, look, before looking to what next, at least make sure that as a business, you've understood the radical change that this could have on your business. It could be um, hiring new staff. It could be just retraining and kind of getting people up to speed. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't underestimate the amount of time that it will take um, companies to adopt this sort of new technology. But then moving forward, as you said, to, to answer your question, um, is really it's coming down to understanding kind of how digital twins will work together. Um, it's, it's great to have a connected asset. Um, I think there's certainly value in that alone as sort of linking back to that functional output of a dashboard or just something that we're familiar with. Um, I really like the car dashboard example, um, and I still use it in most of my presentations or speaking with clients today. It's like, oh yeah, I, I have one of those already. It's like, yes, they're available commercially. Um, <laughs> Google Weather is also another great example where you explain to them, you can go on a phone app and you can look at what the weather is. Um, and you know when it's wrong and it's saying it's snowing outside and it's glorious sunshine, like, yeah, Google can get it wrong sometimes. And so can Google, um, and so can sort of predictive digital twins. Um, they're not perfect. Um, they are the best representation that you can get for the value of investment that you're willing to make. So, yes, um, you've got something. Are there are there's some things that, um, like, while an enterprise is attempting to adopt digital twins that, uh, that we frequently see uh, business leaders and decision makers sort of have trouble with or don't necessarily agree with. And so that really slows down their adoption process. Yeah, that's, that's one of the sort of the flip sides of it. Even when you provide them this connected information, and like you say, if they're struggling, that they want like, the facts and figures in front of them to be able to make that decision. Um, and, and I think it kind of wraps up to with the what next question that we've just been discussing around this is kind of what's next for them, is they want to look at at least a deployment, as I said, go through that cultural change of what's needed, 
will then start to look at, okay, we've got something. We've now got that little bit more insight. We've got it in a more reasonable timescale rather than waiting to, for somebody to go chasing forms and dig out the filing cabinets of the data that we need. And then they can start to make better decisions. And then they can say, well, right, well, we've got this now, but actually um, human resources is another good thing. Of, we need to know when people are logging in and out because actually when people are pulling in sick days, we've realized that really affects our productivity for the day. We need to be able to re-dynamically allocate every morning um, who's on the shop floor. If Freddie's ill today, then can James pick up that slack um, and, and dynamically move people out? That needs live information as they enter the door to know what they've clocked in so they can start making decisions as soon as they can. Be that on a dashboard that they can just then physically move around, or it might be a more sophisticated sort of discrete event simulation, which is commonly used. Um, but yeah, it's really about driving What's the value we've got now? What's the value that we can look towards? And, and how can we look at that in terms of what's the investment and what's the return on investment that we can start to make? Because in, in, in sort of practicality terms, some people could spend thousands of pounds on sensors, which gives them very little value, versus they could put a smart thermometer on the wall, which logs the current temperature of the room every hour and logs it to a database. But they can use that in terms of looking at a process and know whether to start with it because the glue can't cure at a certain temperature. Mm. So all of a sudden they have the information they need and that might have been sort of five pound, ten pound, who knows. Okay. Um, <laughs> so you've still got to weigh up that use case to know should I even apply that technology. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that if you start to look at digital twins as an approach, you can also think of them in terms of different scales. That you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be a 100k we've got to do all of this and it's got to have all these facets to it and we've got to have all new technology and all new sensors and the, the reporting rate and the veracity and you know actually is it enough if it does this does that match the use case does that get you going um i think one of the things that that we're hearing on in terms of what next is this um that you touched on is add digital twin versus digital twins actually mm. can i start what do i gain by taking different use cases that I have started, you know, not, not trying to, not trying to run before you can walk, but I've started doing use cases. Actually, if I could have another twin or another use case, is there some um, Metcalf law-esque benefit from reusing, combining, interoperating um, digital twins and, and how that will be? Yeah, it's something we did touch upon in the report as well. Um, we'd got there the definition of digital twin, but we'd also got quite a few other sections of digital shadows, digital masters, um, composite digital twin, which is, is the point I'll get to. Um, and, it, and it's kind of that, which is, look, these things can be built on top of each other. Um, but actually what's been sort of quite refreshing about the report, even from my side of what this is our sort of latest report on it, is actually straight away people are saying, look, actually we don't think composite twins the uh, right, right term. Um, People have been discussing it as Russian doll effect of, look, you've got twins within twins, so depending on your permissions, um, you can kind of access different levels of information. So some people might just get a traffic light of, assets good, assets close to sort of needing a warning. If it's a machine tool, it might need some maintenance. Um, or it's red of, it's broke, come fix it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then actually, once you get a le level down, uh, deeper, you might have sort of the shop floor manager, which says, well, actually, um, Fred's coming to fix it in half an hour, don't worry, it's amber, but it's being resolved. And then you've got sort of Fred who can log into the system and say, 
all right, well, it's the whatchamacallit that need fixing, I need my hammer and whatever else, and you've kind of got the real nitty-gritty that you need. Um, so you've kind of got that context of what people have come out with, sort of the Russian doll effect. But um, I think in terms of what we've now, or deemed within the report as composite digital twin, it seems to be much more like a relational digital twin um, or something that you can say, look, we can tap into local water levels, uh, water sort of tables, or we could tap into local weather to know um, sort of whether it's sunny or the current temperature outside. And then that relates to something else that you're doing. So again, if it's a manufacturing process and you know that day that you're going to be choosing something where internally the temperature must be so much, then you'll know actually ahead of time how soon to turn the heating on that morning um, to actually get it to the right temperature. And we've actually heard other, the flip side of that is actually now when people are doing a lot of um, furnace work in sort of heavy um, manufacturing sites, they're turning the heating off when they're running the furnaces because there's no point because they're about to turn the furnace on in half an hour. <laughs> and so they don't need to turn the heating on because it's just a giant heater that melts the yeah. metal, the, which is the main thing. So actually they're using that to like look at carbon neutrality, to say, look, why should we burn gas to heat up the building when I think it's it, I think it's one of those things that the moment you said it, it's blindingly obvious. But until mm -hmm. someone looks at it, um, it's very easily overlooked in terms yeah. of, of what you're doing and how you're performing. I mean, I think the, 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 the point you make about relational twins is very interesting because I'm I'm a big believer in kind of um, nominative determinism. Like if you start naming things, that's how you shape them. And and composite twins comes with a suspicion of hierarchies of you know the, the effectively one-dimensional fixed hierarchies this fits within this within this within this and that's how they fit together and the examples you're using there are multi-dimensional yeah it might be what and again it comes back to your point about case studies for me is it good enough to see this okay well that's the relational bit of the world that you need to see and that's that's what you want to interact and there might be things outside that you want to bring into that um but you're not necessarily interested in a kind of component to object to mass object to ecosystem in a kind of linear way. It's much more fragmented and decentralized than that. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it's a really interesting point as well around, you still need categorizations and it's something we did put in the report as well of like a product twin or an enterprise twin or whatever else. Um, you're right, some people have gone to um, even further. So the recent, like say the, the team defense information um, presentation that we spoke at like, um, there was another example there with the US um, Department of Defense about the new Rolls-Royce O model, and they've broken out into five levels. Um, they sort of separated out component twin and sort of product twin. Um, we, we had initially, believe it or not, in the MRC report, and we were like, well, a component is just somebody else's product. Um, so yeah. if you make nuts and bolts, like that is your product. And just because it's somebody else's component, then it's still your product. So do you not need similar types of information depending on who you are? And, and I, think that's, I think that's really interesting, uh, the way you categorize them uh, in terms of their function, supervisory, uh, interactive, predictive, and also then asset process enterprise. Because it is a point of view piece, isn't it? If, 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 if rolling off your production line are fan blades, that is the product, that is the asset. The fact that someone else uses it to composite it into an engine and then someone else uses that engine to make an airliner who in turn serves in a fleet or you know, whatever it might be. From your perspective, that is the asset, that is the be all and end all. And the composites of that are 
the raw materials or the or, or the production process or whatever it might be um yeah. I, I think i think it's fascinating how that point of view bit alludes to your relational piece over the kind of fixed categorization that yeah it's certainly yeah. one of the challenges of as we said i work in the manufacturing space we do research we wanted to get to a definition where it was applicable to everybody um, and that's why, I mean, some of the feedback we've got, well, it's very broad. I'm like, well, yeah, they are. <laughs> it, it's literally whatever you want to use it for. So when you're looking, like you say, at how you categorize these things, I, I think it certainly takes its place. But it, it's not the kind of be all and end all of you need to separate it out of everything because they are so broad. So looking at, like you say, supervisory, interactive, predictive, um, looking at sort of the asset, kind of the process or the enterprise, that's kind of how we saw the, the three main lumpings of you've got something physical, which you touch or it's like something you sell or something like that. You've got something which is happening around it. So the process or like what's happening on the shop floor, or you've got it working as a business of like how's sales doing, how's human resources doing, like what, what's all these things happening? Do we need to recruit? So that's kind of the three categories. And it may be that a digital twin to certain sectors. So again, team defense information, they might love it to be in five, but it really makes sense for their sector. But I think as a broad general understanding mm. of, of the technology and that approach, um, we saw it fitting much more with three. Um, again, it, it's everybody's saying slightly different things at the moment, but it's a, certainly a lot better than it was two years ago. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and just on a final point on the report, is there is there anything you've been surprised? Because it's been out for, for um, three, four months um, it has had a very broad pickup outside the manufacturing industry. I'm, I'm coming across it a lot in conversations um, in the UK and the US uh, with people talking about it. Is there anything that you've been surprised by, either at things that people have taken exception to or that with your proximity to it, you thought was very obvious and then they've, they've come back and said, oh, this was really helpful. The way you categorize this or the way you define this is, 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 has really helped us out. I think there's a couple of points. I think the main one for me is being, I never thought of it that way before. Um, I think that's kind of the one standout piece of people have gone, as I was mentioning with the car dashboard example or, or Google Maps or sort of the weather, like people have gone, oh yeah, we use that every day. Um, <laughs> and it's like, yes, you use connected data all the time. Um, and you use Google Maps to have a predictive digital twin to say, I need to get from here to the shops. What's the traffic like? Oh, look, there's been a smash on that bottom. Um, and you've kind of got that aspect to it. Um, the other interesting point was around, I guess, being agnostic in the place that we sit within research. People are now actually using this as their own internal documentation of when they get approached around digital twins, they are sent this paper. Um, so if they're getting sort of a new sale or just trying to drive a bit of understanding of their client, they're now using this paper as kind of, this is what a digital twin means. And yes, they might just point them to the one page which says, like say, that one sentence which took most of our time to develop. Um, versus, look, if they're interested, they'll read it all anyway and understand why. But yeah, it's a really interesting, I guess I wanted to have an impact um, and must admit it's been really refreshing to get that and kind of have the adoption of yes, this is exactly what it means. Um, we're in agreement with you. As I said before, from OEMs through to technology providers through to SMEs. Um, but yeah, to be sort of used at that kind of internal of, look, you're agnostic, we believe the word you're saying, and the, and the words that you've written down versus, look, I think anybody could have produced that report we've been working in space to an extent of kind of their take on the sector, but to sit universally across everybody so well, 
um, it, we've kind of really seen the adoption in that way. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, one of the things that we like to do when we uh, get guests on uh, the podcast is uh, ask you to bring along an article. And uh, Marcus and I do the same. Um, uh, that is unrelated to what to, to the main subject matter. Um, and just to touch on it, um, just to, to reflect on what we've been talking about. Um, and you uh, shared with us an amazing uh, video, which I have to confess I hadn't seen before, um, which was uh, Boston Dynamics and their spot expend, extended product line. And again, we'll put a we'll put a link in the detail. But what was it that particularly interested you uh, about the video? Yeah, it's, it's one that's actually just out. So I think it was literally like caught off the press as we were in the <laughs> session. But um, it's just robotics that hasn't half moved on so far in the last few years. It's, I mean, I work at a research centre, as we said. Um, we have AGBs running around. We have robotic arms. I mean, we have the Titan robot, which is milling titanium, um, which has never been done before. It's like one of the few in the world now which can... Kind of do that process and i'm used to that or used to be mentioned the c word and not being working at home for last year yeah um like so i'm used to robotics but the, the way that they have developed this and yes they've been working on this um boston dynamics for a long time i mean if looking back as i did the other night from right from where they started of they could barely keep a bipedal robot upstanding versus now when they've got something fully autonomously working around it's just I guess for me, the sheer development of where they've got to and the investment that they've put into this from research through to make an industry robot, I just find fascinating, really. And um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting now of look, they're actually working on the industrial use cases. It's, it's not just we want to play with robotics. It's kind of that final push of, look, this can enter the manufacturing space. It can go and gather what it needs to. Um, it looks like it could even pick up your mucky socks if you've got 75 grand to have one at home. Um, but yeah, just, just this sheer kind of applicability now of dense environments, looking at nuclear power stations as well, it's sort of walking around them, gathering data, it's sort of, so there's a health benefit to people as well, it's just, it's just so come on heaps of bounds really. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck by, by the productization of, of cool technology, I mean, you know, in my opinion, objectively cool technology. Like uh, yeah, Boston Dynamics has always been producing cool stuff. But that <laughs> this was for enterprise. It was stuff that you could go out and buy. And it, the video is a walkthrough of the interconnected products around Spot, which is their um, uh, dog-esque, for want of a better word, robot, yeah, four-legged robot that, for, for surveying. Um, but it, but it was it was those applications. It was the use cases of you know if you're inspecting the inside of this factory, you can switch to thermal imaging and you can view it. And here's how you feed back, and here's how you change the gate to move under and around different obstacles, and and so on. As opposed to you know I think even two years ago, they and similar companies like them, a lot of their videos were a bit kind of well, that's exciting. Like it's exciting that we're developing bipedal and, and four-legged ob objects. It's cool that they have resemblance to, uh, not to completely anthropomorphize them, but yeah, they've called it Spot. <laughs> there must be some some recognition of its canine-esque qualities. Um, but that but the, they, the underneath it, they, they are driving at real use cases and you can see an entire business model and new business models we haven't seen. You know, what could people do with this when coupled with something else? What could they do with this um, in in spheres that perhaps Boston Dynamics haven't considered or, or or at least aren't talking about? They may well have considered them. 
Yeah, exactly. And it sounded like to me with the arm that they've got, which is kind of one of the main things, which can sort of, by the looks of it, again, proof will be in the pudding, but apparently fairly robustly open doors and kind of moved levers. That, that's a universal interface to something else. I mean, one thing that's not spoken about quite openly, um, but I noticed it having worked with the systems in the past, is under the hood, it's using what's known as the robot operating system. Um, which means if, if you have another device that you attach to it, you can just integrate it with the systems. So as they've said, like the arm, when you move it to the side, you need to balance out with your leg or side and shift your body mass to still be stable. Um, mm. If you've got that logic and that understanding built into the system, then there's no reason that it couldn't have interchangeable devices or a tool change or mechanism for these different things. So let's say they've got the infrared on there, um, they've got a microphone on there, but what happens if you want a 360 camera on there or, or something else so you can always see around it? Like it, it should be fairly straightforward to do, and that's what I saw. They've um, looked at Trimble and, and a few other companies where they've got industrial sensors on there, but like I say, Will's your oyster, I think, now really. Yeah, and that that product as platform, I think, is really exciting for for those kind of applications. You could see, you know, social care is a big issue. People living with dementia is is on the rise. You know, these are, this isn't as far as people might expect. I mean, I know we're into kind of second half of the chessboard type uh, acceleration of innovation and how it happens, but those sorts of videos really strike me that we are much closer to the domestic or at least non-industrial application of some of these products as platforms. Like, you know, yes, the the standard product line might not come with the right add-ons, but these pre-existing add-ons elsewhere could be used to interoperate with it and create something genuinely um, useful for social care, healthcare, whatever yeah. it may be. I mean, even Adam Savage had a recent video on it, on his sort of what he used to do as Mythbusted is now a YouTube channel called Tested. Yeah. Um, they've got a spot dog and kind of, they were making it dance around and just very easy to program it and try and make it do the splits and then jump into a narrow gate and, the pure dexterity is just unbelievable for, like you say, what you can now do for uh, hospitality use cases or anything else. Really. It's, they've got the platform. They've just got to build it out now. Brilliant. It is quite amazing that they're they're now able to have Spot be controlled entirely over the internet um, without actually being in the presence of the robot, which I guess is entirely new, that it can be controlled from anywhere in the world. Um, I was talking to an architect that works in one of the uh, Boston hospitals and uh, they were saying that, you know, something like that is incredibly useful right now during pandemic times because then doctors and other people could actually entirely stay out of these contagious areas where, you know, they've been struggling to, to really contain um, pandemic illnesses to one section, but a spot robot could be controlled remotely and go across there to wherever it needs to get in order to do its observations for, you know, op uh, optimizations and architectural changes in different places. Yeah, definitely. And talking about uh, innovations coming thick and fast, uh, Marcus, you, you brought something that's kind of the flip side of, of uh, innovation. Um, from Security Magazine. What, what have you got for us? Yeah, so this article was really interesting, um, but the, the, the thing that really caught my eye was that uh, it focused on 
the challenges that we may see in the next 10 years versus the challenges that we may see uh, today, or at least this year. Um, and some of them were the same between the two of them. Uh, and some of them uh, were a bit different. And the ones that I sort of wanted to touch on were the ones that seemed to never really go away, which was the adoption of, of digital technologies, um, the speed of destructive innovation, privacy and cyber threats, which, you know, it's just really interesting to see like, oh, these issues that are that are currently, you know, plaguing enterprises today or making uh, advancement difficult sort of sticks around. And I, I want to, I wanted to explore why is that? Why, why are these issues sticking around so long um, and how we might evolve away from it? Yeah, I, so uh, and obviously all links will be, be in the details. So this is Security Magazine. And, and the section that I found most interesting was the top 10 risks for 2030. Uh, exactly as you say, Marcus. Mm-hmm. And actually tying back to something, John, you were saying earlier about the adoption challenges, really understanding how this will impact. And what I saw in those risks was really just a fear of the unknown. You know, we um, They talk about uh, one of the issues is... Um, uh, rapid speed of disruptive innovation outpacing our ability to compete. Uh, how do you compete with things that are born digital um, and competitors in that space? And it, it feels actually like a, um, while we're talking about digital twins, a reflection of people's fears, slightly more deep-seated fears today, that, that things are changing, that there are these approaches and technologies on, on the cusp that could quite radically transform how we operate. And as a result, 30 years of experience in how you do risk mitigation in these areas might not be as compelling uh, uh, a CV track record as it could be if the world's shifting. But I I know that at AMRC, kind of risk mitigation and security are absolutely top of mind when you're thinking about uh, new technology. So I wondered, uh, John, what your take was on on what you read and and, uh, the whole area. Yeah, it, it's an interesting article, actually. It's, it's a good one to pick out, Marcus, because like you say, the same things are still, we still think are going to be troublesome in sort of 10 years' time. And and as you say, sort of, Ali, like, we have to have those at Paramount. The threat of a manufacturing site even being sort of taken down or kind of hosted or suddenly if AGVs are roaming around and doing something malicious and causing damage, then it, it's kind of sort of unparamount what damage that could do to a business. Um, it could literally be controlled, be torn down from the inside. Um, so yeah, it's, it's no wonder that people are still scared about um, the same things or similar things. I mean, for me, the, the kind of standout piece was a slight sidetrack from the article of how many people have got jobs that they thought they would have when they were at school. I think very little. Um, I certainly didn't expect to be doing the job that I'm doing now um, (laughs) when I was sort of leaving school and going to uni. So it was a a very interesting piece around, I think adoption of technology is, is, will always be a thing. And and when we were sort of the internet, I still remember getting a broadband for the first time. But yet nowadays it's like, well, that's common. Like everyone has internet um, pretty much. Everyone pretty much has a smartphone. So it's almost that of if you've got kids, like they adopt technology so much quicker as well. So I think it's much more about the sort of drive of new technology and, and needing the skill sets for people to hire to have the right technologies in the business, let alone them actually knowing that they even need them in the first place. 
i.e., could you hire a digital twin expert to come in and drive the business for needing that technology in the business or any manufacturing system or any system in whatsoever and know that you're getting the right candidate because they're not just talking a good talk, but they actually know what they're on about and they're able to revolutionize your business in that area. And I don't think that will ever go away. No, I, I think it's really interesting the the flag you made there about um what people live with and, and the jobs they have and so on because actually one of the things that i saw tangential to the article that that's the article obviously is effectively a these are the enterprise concerns but i know from projects uh, like my smarter essex uh, which will include a link to and others their concern is actually when you say when one says entirely rightly most people the majority of people have internet actually the digital exclusion of people that don't have access to or are struggling suddenly you know you're looking forward to a future where the real risk is that that is disproportionately impactful you know if you if you if you are somehow um or not somehow if you are in 2030 leaving school and are not a digital native or have struggled with it or have not had access to it consistently how is that going to completely impact the rest of your life and everything around it and and yeah the efforts that people are making to um both at a corporate level and, and an organizational level to expand inclusion for me only reinforces what you're saying in terms of the impact that it will have on on the longer term prospects yeah it'll definitely get worse if it, if it doesn't get better because like you say the gap will become too wide for people to overcome mm. um okay. to slightly uh, change tone um the article I have comes from MIT News, and it, it's one of their regular reports on what they've been up to. And it's about liquid machine learning systems adapting to changing conditions. And uh, it's from Ramin Hassani. Uh, it, it hit the work there is the primary focus. Um, but the bit that really struck me, and, and in light of actually knowing that we were going to talk about your report and the difference between a digital twin and digital shadows as kind of historical information, is Ramin said, the real world is all about sequences, even our perception. You're not perceiving images, you're perceiving sequences of images. So time series data actually create our reality. And I thought this whole uh, piece about looking at an algorithm to analyze data in real time is a bit like your, your, your uh, reflections on the security piece about the impact that this might then have is actually while it sounds like a simple progression from where we are, the potential impacts it could have are are vast, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. And it, it's, it's always a thing of, if you don't refresh fast enough, you'll miss something that you need. And if you refresh too fast, then you're wasting processing power, you've over-engineered something. But is that better than being too conservative? And that sort of toss-up, as we do with all engineering. Should I over-engineer it? Should I just do enough? Have I missed a factor, which sort of determines that that structure is going to fail? Um, We've all seen bad um, videos of bridges collapsing because they didn't estimate the vibration that would be occurred by so many people walking across. Then um, you see the whole bridge swaying um, from an under-engineered bridge or they made an assumption it wasn't accurate. So I think it just reflects on something that we've all looked at and all seen cases of, but yet it's still, as you say, paramount to how we engineer things today. Marcus, I don't know if you had uh, any thoughts uh, looking at the MIT. Obviously, we, we shared it in advance. Any the MIT? Article. I did. Yeah, I thought it was quite fascinating. Uh, you know, the the idea that he he modeled um, 
this this machine learning algorithm around <laughs> the neurons of a nematode, which I thought was pretty pretty fascinating. But the thing was was that in essence, he was having, I suppose, less algorithms performing more robust operations, which in turn was allowing it to process more information. Um, and that's sort of like makes me wonder a bit about, you know, uh, over time, how much we would continue to need to process more information efficiently um, in some of the use cases that uh, liquid, uh, liquid machine learning could be utilized for. Yeah, I, th I think that's I mean, one of the things that I think is, and it comes up a lot in the conversations, uh, again, featured in Jonathan's um, report around architecture and, and use case and work out what it is you actually need, that we see a lot of, oh, in order to make a decision, I need to understand all of the variables. And actually, one of the things that I think is interesting about kind of time series, actually, at certain points in time, you actually need very few um, <laughs> uh, uh, pieces of information. And in fact, John, you mentioned them when you were going through the kind of, for some people, it's a, is it okay, green light? Is Might it be not okay at some point in the future? Or like, it's busted, you need to come and fix it. Is not a necessarily a huge array of data. It's quite quite simple decision trees in effect or, or, or algorithmic pieces. Um, yeah. you know, where the, the action of throwing a ball back and forth you can learn, you know, you can learn everything you need to know about aerodynamics of ball and whatever else. But actually, if the context is the most important thing, am I playing this with someone who's going to throw the ball at my face? That that then affects what, what the outcome might be. And then uh, just, just finally um, to wrap up, I thought we'd touch on something that has been in the, the news um, recently. Um, and the thing that I saw was about the uh, SN9 hard landing in inverted commas, uh, that happened for, for SpaceX uh, recently. Um, and the bit that I thought, well, there are two things really that I thought were particularly interesting about it. The first was it's the first time I've come across the phrase RUD, uh, which was for a rapid unscheduled disassembly, uh, which as far as I can tell is code for it blew up. Uh, and, and secondly, was that um, what I thought was amazing was the difference in response from people who have been following the SpaceX story versus the casual observer. So the casual observer had quite a lot of another crash for SpaceX or SpaceX crashes on test flight or whatever. But a lot of, a lot of kind of citizen followers of SpaceX talking about, well, imagine all the data they've got. Imagine what they'll have learned from that. Imagine what, and, and actually it's very interesting, both in terms of recognizing it's a test flight and that, failure is a necessary part of learning but also how open spacex have been about what they're doing and how they're doing it in really quite rapid time i mean the, so i think the flight was yesterday and today they've got this is what went wrong here's all you know people doing amateur analysis of the footage have had their theories confirmed or not yeah there's a lot of broadcasting of what they're up to and i just thought it was a fascinating example of innovative technology and how it's being used and where it's being used yeah, and I almost think of, um, perhaps naively, that it's almost the middle finger to the companies that said, you can't do this, you can't reuse the rocket, you can't do this, and all the people's like, yeah, go on, Elon, prove them wrong. Yeah. Um, but I think it's right. The stuff that people are now realising, because look, things go wrong all the time, they don't see the amount of cars that get crashed before they're actually allowed to enter the roads of physical testing. Um, the trouble with a rocket is you can't really hide it. 
So if you go to launch a rocket and try and land it again, people might twig off. Um, so I think, yeah, they've got the right approach. You, you've got to show it and you've got to try it. And you've got to understand it. And yeah, you can do it the safest way possible. But sometimes pushing stuff to the edge to see where it fails will only improve your next generational design. So look, test it to where you think it's not recoverable on the yeah. descent and then see if it can recover. Mm. How close does it? And does that match your modeling technique? Like you gather so much more of that because we've all done enough maps to realize friction, you always ignore it or you say it's linear. Um, and that just about gets you through your exams. Um, <laughs> but when you come to do it in, in practice with sort of all the forces and all the different systems they've got on that thing, no wonder they need sort of real-time testing. Yeah. Yeah. And SpaceX has, uh, SpaceX is the, the expert at failing upwards, you know, uh, in terms of when they were trying to uh, successfully land the Falcon 9 rocket successfully after launching satellites. Uh, it took them many attempts, but ultimately they, they were able to use the data from each of those trials uh, or experimental uh, landings and start nailing the landings. Uh, and now we're seeing just about every single landing is successful, including the one that landed uh, offshore. Um, I, yeah, the Stayed out of control, and they still managed to to save that rocket. And that brings us to an end of another episode of Digital Reflections. Thank you very much to our guest Jonathan Eyre from the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre. The report that we've been discussing is once again untangling the requirements of a digital twin. Um, so, Jonathan, thank you very much for being here. No problem. Welcome to the spot, and it's uh, been great talking to you both. And that about ties a bow on this week's episode of Digital Reflections. Thank you to all of you for listening. And Marcus and I look forward to welcoming you back for our next guest, Sean Gigramosa of Rolls-Royce Power Systems.